It's a privilege uh, for me today to talk about the greatest generation. The baby boomers was the first generation where we thought that the world would be better over time. But my generation was looking for more and seeking everything and trying to find answers for themselves. I know for the millennial generation, we were too young to really understand what we were getting ourselves into. Like we focus on school, but like we want to like hang out with our friends a lot. So we always thought that, you know, there's always gonna be a better day. What we realized is that wasn't the case at all. that you are here. Uh, Jamie is in Toronto and teaching right now uh, in Lucas Cooper's church. And so Jamie got a hold of me, I'm gonna say four months ago. I like to tease him about his study breaks. What does he do? Because I know what I do on study breaks and it's got a lot of television and a lot of rest and uh, not Jamie. Jamie's studying and thinking and he came back from his summer study break with an idea for this series called Generations. And it's based on his assessment of Scottsdale Bible Church. Uh, he, I, and I, I watched his message last week twice and he made this point that SBC is a large, stable, multi-generational church. And, and that produces challenges. And so Jamie's desire is to corporately address that, make us aware of those challenges, and then challenge you to begin to bridge those gaps. Uh, he didn't, Jamie didn't give me a whole charge of, here's what I want you to say, here's what I want you to do, here's where this is going. So I told the people last night, there were a whole bunch of people here last night, why they weren't home watching the Cubs is beyond me. <laughs> I, I don't get it. I, uh, you know, I, I said this, I, I said in the spring, this is the year. Now, it was the spring of 64. <laughs> Uh, but, I, but I said it. I uh, was at spring training and saw my favorite all-time shirt. It was a long-sleeve white T-shirt with a Cubs logo, and on the back it said, any team can have a bad century. And, and so it's all over. The curse is over. This is the year. But I didn't get to see it last night. I was here, and... I, I took, and I told those poor people last night, you're the rough draft, because I'm not sure how much I have, but, but I know what I want to accomplish. I want to pick up exactly where Jamie left off. He reminded us that a generation, according to Webster, is a period of about 18 to 25 years. It's from the time that you're born to you begin to have children. So that any given time, we have four or five generations together. Uh, Jamie's uh, led us into some of the challenges with that. One author writes this. This is where this gets tricky, talking about the generational mix. How do we see and understand those who are not in our generation? How do we work with them? How do we care for them? I, even how do we reach them? And for the church, how do we develop a close-knit, 
community among ourselves that can successfully navigate all the pitfalls of divergent, even competing generations. That you put these generations together and it becomes obvious that they're different. Jamie lists five generations that we're going to look at in this series. And roughly the, the dates, he was generous on the greatest generation, those born from 1900 to 1945. The boomers, and I fit in that, although Jamie's always teasing me that I'm much more part of the greatest generation. I tend to think and act like them, maybe more than the boomers, then Generation X, then the millennials, and then the, the next generation, whatever that is. And the challenge is to pass that baton, it is to allow for a transition, to, to coexist with generations that are very different in, 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 in very simple ways. All you gotta do is get in the car with grandpa and dad and one of the grandkids and decide what music you're gonna listen to. <laughs> Grandpa wants to listen to Jay-Z and Beyonce. Okay. Well, maybe not always, but, but you got it. You got the differences. Here was the crucial main point from last week. It's crucial for any generation to look before and to look after. We want you to become very aware of what happened before, and then for that generation to be looking forward. That's the key to this. Jamie, build a biblical basis for this. Let me add a couple of verses. Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation shall praise your work, God's work, to another generation. Declare your mighty acts. So among all the things we're passing on is our faith. Joel 1.3, tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons, their sons to the next generation. God has, within the nation of Israel, and, and therefore really in all history, provided a community for us to address this idea of a next generation. One author writes this, God placed individuals within a family, each family within a tribe, each tribe within a generation. No generations excluded, no children left out, no older people set aside. Within each tribe were the components of family, and they were community. That was God's design, is that you'd live together, live together even as a family. The world we're in has changed much of that. When that generation, that greatest generation, was born, they were born at home. When grandma and grandpa died, they died at home. I could be wrong on this, but I think I'm correct. John Kennedy was the last president of the United States to be born at home. You had life and death within the home. You, you lived with generations together. So here's the big point, the main take-home point. 
the challenge that Jamie gave us, when we live respecting, I'm, I'm, and I'm going to take this and, and broaden it beyond generations to people that are just different, when we live together, we have internal unity and external witness. You, you begin to see people living together, diverse, different. We're talking about age, but cultural difference, racial differences, political differences. Living together in unity, and here's what happens. The world looks at this and says, that's different. I want that. So my task today, in one sense, is, is pretty simple. It's to talk about the, the greatest generation. When you hear that term, you probably think of this book, Tom Brokaw's book. He coined the phrase. The book was written in 1998. It's the result of Tom Brokaw being assigned to cover the 40th anniversary of D-Day. And what happened to him, and he tells us in this book, what happened to him is he was swept away as he met these men and heard their stories and began to see story after story after story after story. Uh, when I was doing my research, that means Google, okay? <laughs> when I was doing my research, I came across an article called Seven Manly Traits that we can learn from the greatest generation. I, I, I didn't use the article, but at the top of the article was this picture. And, and, and I looked at it. That just seems like the greatest generation to me, that guy, doesn't he? The, the, this face says all sorts of stuff. Determination, honor, responsibility, national pride. So I want to talk about those. When, uh, when I got the summary of where we were going in this series and, and the greatest generation, uh, here's what Jamie sent me. He, he gave me the, the birth years of 1900 to 1945. So it would be those that are 71 to 100 plus years old. Now, I know that at the other campuses and here in this room, there are some of you from that greatest generation. I, I want to ask you to stand. I, I'm leery to do that because you already played the true-false test and you might be exhausted, okay? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> but if you have the capacity and the ability and the desire and you're in this greatest generation, whether you're here or in the chapel, the venue, cactus, wherever you are, will you stand so that we can acknowledge you, please? That's awesome. That's awesome. Now you can sit and take a nap, okay? You're, you're done for the day. Uh, the other names associated with the greatest generation are the silent generation, traditionalist, radio babies. I'd never heard that. Forgotten generation. And then Jamie highlighted significant people born in the greatest generation. Bob Dole, 
Elizabeth Taylor, Bob Newhart, and Sean Connery. I'm not sure, I don't know. I don't know. Let, let me add to this list some others that were born in this greatest generation. Muhammad Ali, Louis Armstrong, Bing Crosby, Walt Disney. Here's a guy you don't think of in the greatest generation. Nobel Prize winner, Bob Dylan, Betty Friedan, Milton Friedman, Billy Graham, Martin Luther King Jr., Ray Kroc, Charles Lindbergh, Edward R. Murrell. You don't think of this in the greatest generation. Elvis Presley, John Kennedy, Jackie Robinson, Jonas Salk. He sent us all to grade schools taking those little cubes of sugar. <laughs> Thomas Watson, Tennessee Williams, Ronald Reagan, Malcolm X. It's diverse. When I hear the greatest generation, I tend to think that picture we saw. I tend to think of old, white, primarily males fighting a war. But it was very much a diverse group. Diverse ethnically, racially. Women were very much a part of the greatest generation, maybe facilitated the greatest generation. So here's what I want to do. I have 29 minutes and 16 seconds. Here's what I want to do. I want to pull seven lessons that we can learn from the greatest generation. Okay, here we go. Number one, take personal responsibility for your life. One author writes this, today we live in an age of blame. If we can't find someone at fault for our trials and tribulations, we invent something. It's a terribly destructive pattern, not only for personal growth, but for national health. To be given responsibility is an honor and was seen as such during the greatest generations. One author uh, uh, writes this, while today's generation often shirks responsibility as too much of a burden, the greatest generation relished it. In his book, Brokaw writes this, and it's, it's simple. I uh, actually read this at my father's funeral. It seems like it describes that greatest generation. He writes this, these men and women came of age in the Great Depression. We sometimes think of them with World War II, but they were coming out of a depression. This is a tough life. They had watched their parents lose their businesses, their farms, their jobs, their hopes. They had learned to accept a future that played out one day at a time. Then just as there was a glimmer of economic recovery, the war exploded across Europe and Asia. When Pearl Harbor made it irrefutably clear that America was not a fortress, this generation was summoned to the parade ground and told to train for war. They faced, I'm sorry, they answered the call to help save the world from the two most powerful and ruthless military machines ever assembled. They faced great odds and a late start 
but they didn't protest. At a time in their lives, and I love these sentences, at a time in their life when their days and nights should have been filled with innocent adventure and love, the lessons of workaday world, they were fighting, often hand-to-hand, -hand, in the most primitive conditions possible across the bloody landscape of France and Belgium and Italy and Austria. And then, kind of phase two, when the war was over, the men and women who had been involved in uniform and civilian capacities joined in joyous, short-lived celebrations, then began the task of rebuilding their lives and the world they wanted. They understood responsibility. Words like this, duty. You, you did what was right because it was right. It was something that they did. I, I, I think of my dad a lot in this context, and my mom. My, my dad was born in Melrose, Iowa, town of about 250 people. Uh, as far as I know, he never went any further than Des Moines, and that was for the state fair. I saw a great T-shirt. I like T-shirts. I saw a great T-shirt this summer. It said, I went to the Iowa State Fair, and all I got was type 2 di diabetes. <laughs> so I tell you, I don't know if that's appropriate or not. That was a pro. I mean, it's not bad. And my dad went to Des Moines, and then he got a notice to go to the service. He went where they told him to go. They put him on a ship. They sent him to Europe. He served there, he came home, he got married, he went to school, and he raised a family. I, I, I don't know how he felt about it, and I think if you said to him, why did you do it? I think he would have said, whack, why are you asking such a stupid question? <laughs> Here's the second thing, man, does this fit? You learn how to work hard. They just worked. It, it wasn't that they found their passion and then went to work at that and then were happy. They found happiness in the job they did. I, I, I don't know this is true. Sandy and I talk about it. I don't know if my dad and mom ever thought about being happy. I don't know if it ever occurred to them that that was an option. My, my dad came back, and this does not sound like a big deal. I've been rethinking my dad. So this is, I probably need counseling for all this, but I've been rethinking my dad. And he moved from Melrose, Iowa to Davenport, Iowa. It's about a three-hour drive. And I think I've always minimized that. He got out of Melrose. I, I, I don't know why. Having been there, I could guess. <laughs> and he went to Davenport, and that's where St. Ambrose was. And, and listen to this. He didn't have any money. They were dirt, dirt, dirt poor. So he worked full-time at Oscar Mayer. They were down there, and you could drive by and hear them killing. You could hear the pigs if you went over Rockingham Road. He worked full-time at Oscar Mayer. 
He went to college full-time. And then at night, he got a job in a mortuary, which allowed him to sleep there. I imagine it was a quiet place and a lot of sleep. I don't know. And then they'd call him, and they'd send him out to pick up bodies, and that's what he did. And then when he got out of that, he went to work at Davenport Bank, and he worked five days a week and a half a day on Saturday, and that's what you did. Here's the third thing. This is huge. They lived within their means. Here was something my dad taught me. If you don't have the money, you don't get it. They saved. My mom used to save dimes. Not nickels, I guess not enough. Quarters too much. She saved dimes, and she'd put them in a pot. And then she'd dump them out, and there are four boys. I'm the oldest of four. Then we'd get the dimes, we'd count to 50, and then we'd put them in the green wrappers, remember? And then she'd hide them. She'd hide them in the freezer. <laughs> I, I can only think of two things. One, she assumed nobody'd look there. Two, the term cold cash stuck <laughs> in her mind. I, 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 I don't know. They saved S&H green stamps. They didn't have credit cards. There wasn't anything like that. If you wanted gas, you ran into Roger Walters' station, and he pumped it and washed your windows, and then you paid him 20 cents a gallon. I hear a lot today about how hard it is to save. And I get it, but you can do it. Here's some statistics, and, and these blow my mind. In 1900, a family spent 43% of their income on food. In 1960, 17.5%. In 2013, 9.9% on food. Now, if you've got problems with these numbers, I want you to email me. Here's my email address, Jamie Rasmussen, okay, at gmail slash aol.com, okay? I don't know. Those are the stats. I don't know how they break out. Here's what I know. We've got more disposable income than we've ever had. Our problem is we've got our needs and wants confused. Radio Shack, I think later became The Shack, and it may now be out of business, I don't know. Radio Shack once had a tagline on a commercial, we have thousands of things you never knew you needed. <laughs> My mom and dad taught us if we wanted something, we saved. It changed, it changed life. You didn't get everything you want. Here, here's the next thing we can learn from them, to be humble. I, I, I don't remember how old I was, but my mom had an oak chest. And, and it's kind of like everybody I knew had one of these oak chests where you put sweaters and stuff and moths weren't going to get in there. And it was filled with mothballs. Oh, my gosh. You could tell when it was winter because everybody in church smelled the same. It, it, was, it was wicked. 
And so one day, I'm in there messing around, and I found this blue box. And I opened it up, and I took it to my mom, and I said, what is this? And she said, well, ask your dad when he gets home. She said that to me a lot. And I said, all right. And she said, let me take that till your dad gets home. So my dad came home, and I said, what is this? And he said, it's a purple heart. I don't know what that is. You get it for getting shot. You got shot? Yeah. There was something about that generation. I don't know if it was the atrocity of the war or that spirit of duty and humility, but they didn't talk about it. You had to pull it out of them. They were heroes, but didn't brag. Here's the fifth thing. They lived loyally. They were loyal to their country, loyal to the company. My dad graduated from college on a Sunday, got married on a Monday. My mom and dad took the train to Pikes Peak. They were there six days. They came back. It was 1948. My dad went to work at Davenport Bank and Trust Company and worked there 43 years. Nobody does that anymore. They were loyal to their friends. They were loyal to the church. They were loyal to their family. Tom Brokaw writes this, it was the last generation in which, broadly speaking, marriage was a commitment and divorce not an option. I can't remember one of my parents' friends who were divorced. In the community we lived in, it was treated like a minor scandal. Now, I know, I've done this a long time, I know what a minefield this topic is. But it was different. You didn't get married and see if it would work out. You made a commitment. And then I hear all the time, oh, they weren't really happy and they were really miserable. Well, you know what? What happened to a little hypocrisy? What happened to that day? And, and just to remind you, the whole image and ceremony hasn't changed. At virtually every wedding I've done, there's this time where the bride and the groom say, for better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, till death do us part. It doesn't say if, then, when. Uh, Sandy and I have been married uh, for four and a half years. And uh, we were married about two weeks when I got really sick. And I've been sick ever since. And we weren't married very long when people started saying to me, Sandy didn't sign up for this. You know, and at first I kind of let it go, and finally I had enough, and I said, yes, she did. I was there. You weren't there. She said, for better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and in health. 
It was a commitment. That's at the core of this. Loyalty, trust. That's how you build a culture, a relationship, a world. Here's the sixth thing. They tackled a challenge. They, they didn't push away from it. They said, bring it on. And, and, and as you relive that greatest generation, it was one challenge after another after another. It was economic hardship. Uh, Sandy and I took Sandy to, uh, <laughs> it was on her bucket list, to Melrose, Iowa. Uh, um, <laughs> and I said, I want you to see where my dad grew up. There were six kids, two bedrooms. Grandma and Grandpa got one, the other six upstairs. And when we got there, the house had been bladed, and all that was left was the foundation. And I was stunned at how small it was. They were living in that. They got out of that and went to the service. They came back from that and had to start all over. But it was a challenge. Here's the last thing. Don't make life so complicated. We've got things so complex, so challenging. I watched an interview with Arnold Palmer, and he was talking about teaching his grandson how to play golf. <laughs> and and I, 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 I mean, there's something. I mean, Arnold Palmer's just cool. And he's talking about his grandson, and his grandson's asking him all these questions about swing angles and this, and angle of the cup wrist and all. And Palmer said, grab the club and swing it. <laughs> Golf is a perfect example. We have this thing so complex. We've made life so complicated driven probably by the technology and the ability to, to make it complicated. My grandsons play baseball. I, I, there aren't a whole bunch of things that I just love to do, but I love to watch them. Football's okay. I watched them play yesterday. But Sandy and I were there the other night to watch Yale play baseball. And he's nine. And he's had more coaching they videoed the swing. They're talking about where the bad, his swing's too long. He's nine. <laughs> here, here, here was the coaching we got. You guys are going to remember this. Harold Piper, that was my little league coach. Here's the hitting instruction I got. Keep your eye on the ball. I didn't even need him for that. I intuitively knew that was going to be part of my success. <laughs> I watched a show the other night on Costco. I love Costco. Sandy's a Costco girl. Sandy's at Costco two or three times a week, which is perfect because she's buying lettuce and I get a $1.50 hot dog. So it's perfect. <laughs> and they were talking to one of the buyers at Costco. And I can't remember the product. It doesn't matter. It was soap or detergent or something. 
and they, they saw this decline in sales. And here's what they figured out. They were carrying too many brands. That after about a selection of three or four, the customer is paralyzed. <laughs> then all of a sudden, what's this new here? Need here. Why all the choices? We live in a world that's so complex and so complicated. And remember the greatest generation. Just keep your eye on the ball. Just swing it. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. You don't have to figure all these things out. Now, I don't want to represent for a second that the greatest generation is a perfect generation. I, and this is confession time, I've never liked the term the greatest generation. It seems a bit of an insult to everybody who went before you and an absolute showstopper to everybody who comes after you. <laughs> what am I? I'm just a millennial. You're the greatest generation. <laughs> well, when you have this gap, how do you bridge this? How do you bridge that gap where you have fundamental differences on everything? Food, sports, Music. Here's the challenge. There are real differences. And, and, and we don't want to minimize this. Now, I've got nine minutes. I, I want to go, I'm, I'm going to stay within the context of generation. But this is dealing with anyone different than yourself. How do we make this thing work? Here's an approach. And, and I chose that term specifically. I don't want to say it's the approach. It's what seems important to me. Number one, you have to value people that are different than you. You can't look down on people. You can't be disparaging toward people over political differences or racial differences or gender differences or economic differences. One gentleman offers this insight. I've learned that the generations often resist one another without knowing one another. You see, it's easy to blame others when you don't know their name and you don't know their story. I have to value people that are different than me. Here's the second thing. You have to be sincerely in, in your outreach to people. Jamie's got a major push going. Don't know where he's going in this series, but my guess is he's going to say, you need to interact as generations. You need to come to together as generations. You've got to do this sincerely. You've got to reach out, and I wrote, with genuine desire to be part of the solution of bridging these gaps. Here's the third thing. It starts with a conversation. Just to begin to talk to each other. Not only, and I guarantee this, not only is it interesting and fascinating 
It's fun. And these people are all around you. I uh, used to do a study, a Bible study, at La Posada, which was the hotel at Lincoln and Tatum. And in there, I met a man who was at, he's since passed away, was at Scottsdale Bible Church. He's an older guy, clearly part of the greatest generation, and there was something just cool about him. I didn't know his story. He used to farm, this is great, he used to farm the southeast corner of 44th and Thomas. <laughs> Hadn't been a farm there in a while. His name was Bill Putney. And we're talking, and I said, were you in World War II? Yeah. I handled reconnaissance for the 29th Division when they landed on D-Day. I'd walk by this guy for a year, and he's sharing this story, and the guy overhearing us said, I was there too. These conversations are with people. They're all around you as you begin to open that door. One author writes this, at its root, communication presents as a simple process of using words and sounds and behaviors to exchange information. The process can get clouded when those words and behaviors mean different things to people. If you're going to have conversation, you're going to have to ask, what do you mean? If you're bridging generations, even words that we use all the time take on different meaning. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and, and he's speaking autobiographically. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've spent in the deep. If you are the greatest generation talking to the millennials and you say, Paul was stoned. <laughs> you may have to define the term. They're going to hear beaten and shipwrecked. They're going to go, bummer, stoned. Paul was a cool dude. So in this dialogue, you have to define terms. This isn't just the church's job. Again, an author writes this. It sounds like a church organization problem, but the real problem, the real solution isn't organizational. It's personal. It's you reaching out to that person when you walk into the cafe. If you're saying, well, I, 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 the gen greatest generation, where are they? Well, you just saw them stand up around you. Initiate. Converse. I wrote this, ask questions. That's how this conversation starts. When, when Sandy and I met for the first time, we talked five hours it was a getting-to-know-you process. It was a lot of questions. 
Some of the best conversations I've had with my mom came out of asking questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. I asked my mom, how did you meet dad? And it started this whole conversation on dancing and how they met. I don't know what spawned this question. I asked her, when's the first time you ate dinner out? And she said, we never, we didn't have any restaurants. The restaurants were in the hotels. Now you'd ask the question, when's the last time you ate at home? <laughs> I asked, we were talking about Christmas, and, and, I, and I said, what'd you get for Christmas? She said, every year I got a nickel and an apple. Not a dime and an orange, a nickel and an apple. Reminds me of the old Rodney Dangerfield line, we were so poor that at Christmas we got batteries, toys not included. But it started this whole question about lifestyle and differences. And, and, and my dad and I had those conversations where we'd go, I couldn't live like you. I couldn't live like you. I'm glad you live that way. Here's the last thing. You need to listen and give grace. If you bring generations together or people together who are different, you're going to have to listen and you're going to have to be gracious because you're going to see the same thing differently. And godly men and women can look at the same thing and arrive at different conclusions. So in this, and I want to push to the finish line, you need to bring two key ingredients to this whole enterprise. Humility and love. Paul tells the church at Philippi that's struggling with an internal problem, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but what's best for you? 51 seconds. Amy, can I go to the last slide? When I start to live in that internally, the external begins to happen. People are going to hear about and see you, and they're going to go, I want that. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. They're going to look at SBC, and they're going to go, it's not like the Elks. It's not like the moose. It's, it's, it's not like the gym. Those are people who care. God's desire is for us to live in community. And that brings tension because there's genuine differences. And the call is not for Jamie to fix it. It's for you to address it. For you to seek out those that are different than yourself, and in this case, generationally. And you be proactive, and you can do that. And what God will do is something that will scream to a world that's dying to see love lived out every day. Let me pray as Troy comes. Father, thank you for this awesome and amazing truth. Take it, would you please, in our life, Use us to be part of the solution to the challenges we see around us. 
God, thank you for Jamie, his devotion, his commitment, his desire to address an issue that's all around us. God, let us be part of that. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.